You're listening to the Cornerstone Word of Life Church podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching. For more information on our church, please visit cwol.org. I'm greatly honored to be here. I've been looking forward to this. Um, I actually just came back from Africa, and I'm headed out for Africa again on uh, on uh, Thursday. This is, has been a, a good and busy year. You know, last year I did two crusades in the beginning of the year, and then this coronavirus hit, and all the nations shut down. And so I decided that we are going to uh, plan very aggressively for this year. But but the one thing I did last year was, you know, I hate sitting down doing nothing. I I I, I don't like it. And so because I couldn't travel anywhere. You know, all the countries were shut down and they, they wouldn't let you in. Even if I wanted to, they wouldn't let me in. And uh, so what I did was the Lord told me to start teaching. So I started teaching uh, because I used to teach in, in a Bible college in Sweden uh, in the early 80s. I taught, uh, it was actually the biggest Bible school in Europe. We had over a thousand students. So, so I, was, I worked there full, uh, full time, uh, four years full time. So I began to teach and uh, I didn't know, I mean, how much I would teach. So I ended up teaching over seven months every single day, one session a day. So I've got more than 200 lessons and it's divided into subjects. I taught on the blood covenant, taught on realities of redemption. I taught on the gifts of the spirit person of the Holy Spirit. So I got, it's all there. If you write my name, you go to YouTube, you write Christopher Alam, it'll all come up. And it's free of charge. It's like Bible school courses. And then what happened that Bible schools all over the world and churches began to use it. Uh, and uh, I get uh, feedback from people, uh, a lot of feedback from people. So that was good. Then uh, uh, I kind of stopped because what happened, I was in a flow. I was doing this every single day because I was not going anywhere. Churches wouldn't have any meetings. You know, churches were shut down, so I was home. And then we began to uh, began to feed pastors, and uh, because there were pastors in Africa and India, uh, you know, churches were shut down and there was no income, and pastors and their families were starving to death. So the Lord told me, "I want you to start feeding these people." So we didn't know. Uh, you know, uh, how much would come in, how much we'd be able to do. But by the time we finished that, we had uh, fed, uh, we, had, we had given away more than $335,000. That was way beyond, you know, that's a lot of, I don't know about you, but for me, that's a lot of money. And, and so, but uh, we, you know, we did that. And then, then this year came, and then I thought we have to plan aggressively. And so we begin to plan. And then this coronavirus in India, you know, people begin to die. They had no oxygen. Uh, that was one of the main reasons people were dying. There were no respirators, no oxygen. So the Lord told me, I want you to buy machines for them that create oxygen. So we bought these hospital, uh, these for these missions, Christian missions hospitals that serve the poor. We bought these oxygen concentrators that actually create oxygen. And we handed those out. So we did that. And then I began to plan for this year. I said last year was almost like, well, not really wasted, but, you know, couldn't do any crusade. So, uh, so we began to plan aggressively. And so, so far we have been able to do seven crusades so far in Africa. 
And what I'm going to now are our eighth and ninth crusades uh, uh, this year. And then when I come back from Africa, I'm home for a week, then I'm going to go to Bangladesh. And uh, I'm going to do a crusade. Uh, the Assemblies of God invited me to do a crusade, plus teach about 500 pastors. And then um, I'm thinking of November. I just, I was thinking, I'll take it easy, be at home. I said, no, that's not me. I have to go somewhere. So, so I'm trying to figure out where to go. Uh, Argentina, Nicaragua, some, someplace. I'll, I'll, I'll be gone somewhere. Uh, in, in December, actually, to do, to do a couple of crusades. So it's good. You know, it's good to serve the Lord. And it's good. Uh, you know, and it's good to be in church. If you're not called to preach the gospel, it's good that you are in church. It's good that you're witnessing to people and you don't get lazy. Because people get lazy. You know, they, they're so used to being in their pajamas and, and do church on Sunday morning. You know, it's not, I mean, look, you still get the word, but it's not, there's nothing like people the saints getting together. There's something special about that. When people come together and you get, to, you get to see your friends and you get to worship God together. The Bible does talk about that. That we should not forsake the assembling together of the saints. So there is, uh, you know, you might, some, some people rationalize. They say, well, I can be at home, get the word. Yeah, you can. You don't even have to belong to a church. You can read the Bible at home. But that's not God's plan. You know, that's not God's plan. God's plan is the local church. And, and there's nothing like the local church here on this earth. It's fantastic because you think of all God's plans and purposes. It's always channelized through the local church. The local church is what sends out missionaries. And local churches where people who get saved are brought in to be discipled and trained. So it's very, very important. So thank you for being here this morning. So I didn't feel lonely here. And sometimes you wonder who's going to come, you know. But praise the Lord. Now, I want to start by showing you some uh, pictures, show you a PowerPoint. So uh, when I was here last year, I, I don't remember everything I did, but I asked the brother, did I show it last year? He said, I don't remember. I said, if you don't, the people don't. So, so uh, if you have seen it already, then forget that you have seen it. If you haven't, this is new for you. So this is um, from our work in Asia because I'm on live stream. I'm not at liberty to divulge the country. And uh, so God has opened a door for us in a country in Asia where Christians, well, let me just say this. It's a country where that your pastors love very much. So now, now, now you know what I mean. And this is in, in the northern part of that country, an unreached area. And like in this town, this town, uh, there's only 1% Christian. And I know this because the, the speaker of their parliament uh, is, a, is a believer. Uh, he's a friend of mine, and he was next to me. He said, Pastor, this town has only one person Christian. And Christian means nominal Christians, Catholics, you know, Lutherans, everybody. So it's, a, it's an unreached place. So this was our last service, uh, uh, the final altar call on the last day. Okay, the next picture. Yes, this is another crusade we did in that same area. This is about one hour away from that first place, another town. And these are small towns, but people came from far. They rented, uh, they rented trucks and buses, and some people drove six to eight hours each way to come to the meeting because they heard that God was moving. And so this is the altar call in another town. Then the next one is, this is yet another town. Now, this one wasn't even in a town. This was in a wasn't even a village. This was in an open agricultural field 
in the middle of nowhere. But the reason we went there, we found that there were many villages around where people lived, and they all came from very far. So, and the next one is, this is also another, this was actually our last crusade we did before Corona shut us down. And so, anyway, so then the next picture, we show a few miracles. This is, this is our team there, and uh, the guy on the right is American. He actually lives there. He's married to a local girl, and the others, on the, th the three on the left are locals. And the next picture is, uh, this is a young boy who was born deaf and mute, and he began to hear and to speak. And the next picture is, uh, this is another little girl who was born deaf and mute, began to hear and to speak. And the next one is, now this, this if you, you can read this, her kidney, she had kidney failure, which swelled up her limbs, uh, and she lost most of her sight and she was instantly healed. You know, uh, I'm not a doctor, but what happened, both her kidneys had shut down, and there was fluid accumulated. Her arms and legs were like very, very swollen, and she was almost completely blind, and she was dying because, you know, they needed kidney transplants to save her, but there was nothing. Brought her to the meeting, and in an instant, her eyesight came back, her limbs came back to normal, and she was healed. And so she came up and testified, and the next one is, uh, this is a, now this is a child born paralyzed. He walks for the first time in our life. And so this is, you know, so thank you for your enthusiasm. So anyway, uh, this, the next picture is, uh, now this is interesting. This woman was brought in a car. She was lame and she was blind. She was unresponsive. That means you could speak to her. She, she was just like a vegetable. And uh, she was in the meeting, and, and God touched her in the car. And she jumped up and began to walk. She began to see and to speak. And she came up on the platform, and I talked to her. And she had been like this for a long, long time. And, and you, see, you see the man behind her with his hand up in the air? And he was kind of, I was trying to talk to her, and he was shouting and screaming, and, I, and I, he was kind of getting on my nerves. So, so I said, who are you? And he said, I'm her pastor. I said, all right, pastor, tell us what happened. Now, see, all those people, they were not Christians, but this woman was a Christian, I found out. She was, he was her pastor. And anyway, so he was so excited. He came up on the, so he told us what had happened. So this was a wonderful miracle that the Lord did. And the guy on the right with the big cross, he's a Lutheran bishop, and he follows us everywhere we go, and he's my interpreter, and uh, you know, he kind of excitable, he jumps up and down like a Walt Disney character, you know. So I call him Brother Pinocchio. He's like, you know, like this, you know. So anyway, so uh, then on the right, uh, the next picture is uh, this. Now this is interesting. This man is about 22 years old, and this is a kind of demon possession. His mind was completely erased. He didn't re re remember his own name. He didn't know who he was, didn't recognize his relatives. It's like his mind had been completely erased. He couldn't speak. He couldn't understand if he spoke. What came out of his mouth was kind of gibberish, you know. I mean, that, that was it. And he was in the crowd. His family brought him. And in an instant, he was set free. And he began to speak. He understood everything. He knew he was, recognized everybody. So this, uh, there, there he is. And the young man in the blue jacket on his left, that's his brother. Okay, the next one. 
is uh, this is a woman who was completely blind who received her sight. And the man on the left, you see the guy holding the microphone? That's a Roman Catholic priest. And the Catholics have a lot of work there, humanitarian work. So when they found out that I was there, uh, you know, preaching the gospel, holding crusades and planting churches. So this Catholic priest came alongside. They said, Pastor, we want to help you. This is good. These people need Jesus. They said, you plant your Pentecostal churches. We, we just want to help you. We are not after the people. You know, we just want to help you. So this Catholic priest has been a huge help to us. Uh, although, you know, we had some problems because I remember the first crusade, uh, a Catholic priest showed up and he says, I live two hours away, but I was, and I was praying and God told me to come here. So how can we help you? We said, well, we need people because there's no Christians here. We are doing a crusade. You know, you need people to, to help you. And so he said, oh, I'll come with people. So he brought 200 young people from, uh, you know, they, they came on two buses and they came. So, so we, we told them what to do, you know, just for crowd control. They lined up and all that. And then when the miracles began to happen, they freaked out. I mean, they went on their knees, pulled their rosaries out, and they were doing Hail Mary, Mother of God. You know, they were so, they didn't know what this was, whether this was God or the devil. So we, so I told my guys that he got to, then we found out they were not born again. You know, we kind of, we never thought of that. They were not saved. So anyway, so uh, my guys um, preached to them and they all received Jesus. And after that, they were okay. And on the last day, we prayed for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They all received the Holy Spirit speaking tongues. So they was okay after that. So anyway, so that is, uh, you know, these people have been helping us. And I know many people have feelings about the Catholics, about Pope Francis, whatever, but Pope Francis wasn't there. It's these people were there. You know, people are people. And so, they, and they were helping us. Anyway, the next picture, I think this is the last picture. So anyway, I just want to show you. So I'm eager to get back here. And we are talking about going in, uh, in I said February, but my team said, no, Pastor, if it opens up early, can we come in December? I said, I'll go anytime as long as they let me in. Uh, right now, right today, they won't let me in, but things are getting better. Praise God. Amen. So, praise God. God is good. Amen. Let's go to Galatians chapter 1. In Galatians chapter 1, uh, the Apostle Paul shares a story. And, you know, we all have a story. I love I loved to listen to people's testimonies. How did you come to Christ about your life? That I find that very, very encouraging. And Paul shares his life. And he says uh, um, in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 13, he says, for, for you have heard of my conversation in time past in the Jews' religion, how, they are, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church and wasted it. And profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in mine own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my father. So what Paul is saying is that he was a Jew and he was a zealous Jew. So that uh, when the Jews were persecuting the church, Paul was part of it. He was, you know, in the forefront of that persecution. And then the second thing is that he was zealous for the traditions of the fathers. It's interesting because faith is always forward-looking. Religion is backward-looking. Religion is more 
interested in maintaining the traditions and the relics of the past rather than what God will do tomorrow. And Paul was one of those people. He was zealous for the traditions of the fathers. But then something happened, verse 15, but when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the heathen. Immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. So he said, there came a time, he says, this is what happened. When it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace. So then came a turning point in his life. And that's what he's talking about. He said, it pleased God and he separated me from my mother's womb. You see, he said it pleased God. Now you have to understand, salvation was not man's idea, it was God's idea. You and I are here because it pleased God. I was thinking of this early this morning, I was thinking all of my friends who, who served with me in the military and I'm the only one who got saved. And most of those guys, they were better, of better character than me. They were more gifted, more talented than I was. They were way ahead of me. I was one of the guys in the bottom of my class. And uh, whenever, uh, I, you know, I, I passed, I barely made it. I was one of those guys who was right at the tail end. I barely made it. But, but I'm standing here today preaching the gospel. Uh, I'm saved because it pleased God. It's because... Uh, you know, it's because of the grace of God alone. He says, I I'm here because it pleased God. And so, so he says, it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb. That means that Paul lived his life with a sense of destiny. He, you know, he, he, he kind of understood he had found the purpose for which God had created him and put him on this planet. And you will never truly be happy or satisfied until you know the purpose for which God created you and put you here. You, you can go around and try to be successful and, 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 and build up whatever and people think you're very successful, but you can be very dissatisfied inside because you're like a ship without a rudder. You know, you, you just drift through life because yeah, and at the end of the day, you look back and you realize, you know, what was the purpose of all this? But Paul knew, although he suffered a lot, went to prison, he was beaten and persecuted. But through it all, he was joyous because he knew, he knew his purpose. He says, you know, God put his hand upon my life when I was in my mother's womb. I was born with a purpose. I was created with a purpose. And that's a wonderful place to be in. And I pray that all of us are able to say that, that this is why God created me. Amen. Amen. And, and when you are doing, when you're living that life for which God created you, it has nothing to do with how much money you have or the outward trappings of success, but it has to, it has to do with understanding the purposes of God. And knowing that, not that you are perfect or not that you have arrived, but that you are in God's purposes and you are flowing right in it. And that's, that's the greatest source of joy one can have, uh, you know. A anyway, so he said that when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, God's calling upon our lives is because of his grace alone. Amen. God, you know, when God calls us to, uh, to serve him, he does not do so on the basis of merit. He calls us because it pleased him. Amen. 
it just, it's just because he, you know, you can ask God, why did you choose this guy to do this? God will say, because it pleased me. You know, it's none of your business, you know. He just, he, he, he just does that, you know. And then, uh, then it says, call me by his grace. Then he tells us why God called him. To reveal his son in me, so that I might preach him among the heathen. Now this is very important. God didn't call us primarily to preach the gospel. He called us to give us a revelation of Jesus Christ. To reveal his son in me. To have a revelation of Jesus Christ. Because walking with God or serving God or doing ministry or whatever, it has to do primarily with having a revelation of Jesus Christ. Because that revelation of Jesus Christ is what will produce life in you and cause you to bear fruit. So that I might preach him among the heathen. Because you can only preach with life-changing conviction the things that are a revelation to you. Amen. Amen. And so he says, God called me. He, He put his hand upon my life so that he may reveal his son in me. Hallelujah. Paul had a revelation of Jesus. And he says, so that I might preach him among the heathen. After that revelation of Jesus, I can go out and preach about him. Amen. Amen. So anyway, that was his story. Now I want to take this opportunity to share with you why I preach the gospel. I want to talk about my life. You know, people ask me because of my background, why I know I've got... American friends as well as uh, people, you know, relatives in the Middle East. So wh- why do you do this? Because I come from a very different kind of background. You know, I came from a Muslim background. I, I, until the age of 21, I'd never seen a Bible, never met a Christian, never heard of Jesus. So people ask me, what happened to you that you are doing this? So why I preach the gospel? So I want to share with you why I choose to preach the gospel. Well, my reasons for preaching the gospel, I would divide them into two categories. The first category are the biblical, the scriptural reasons why I preach the gospel. The second category would be my personal reasons for preaching the gospel. Okay, so let's talk about the biblical reasons why I preach the gospel, and and these apply to all of us. You know, when when there's scripture, where something is in the Bible, it's for all of us. Applies to all of us. So my scriptural reasons for preaching the gospel, you know, just to name a few, is firstly, is that Jesus is the only way to God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. That's my first scriptural reason to preach the gospel because Jesus Christ is the only way to God. There are many religions and all these religions teach a bunch of good things, but there's only one way to God and that is Jesus Christ. No man can come to the Father other than Jesus Christ. You know, I have a, uh, I'm thinking of one of my uncles, he passed away some years ago. I mean, the man was uh, probably... Uh, you know, I'm a Christian, but he was a Muslim. But he's probably closest to a saint that I've ever met. A saintly man. He loved people. He loved God. But he was a Muslim. So 
And so people say to me that, well, it doesn't matter what religion you follow. If you truly follow it with all your heart, you will be a better person. And I said, yeah, maybe. But, but Jesus is the only way to God. So the goal is not to become a better person, but the goal is to come to the Father. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. That's the first reason I preach the gospel, because there's no other way to God other than Jesus. Well, uh, the, my, another reason would be, I preach the gospel because Jesus told us to preach the gospel. There's something which is called the Great Commission. You know what the Great Commission, how many of you ever heard the expression, the Great Commission? Great Commission is when Jesus said to the disciples, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That is called the Great Commission. Now, it's not called the Great Suggestion. <laughs> that if you feel led or if you have the time. Didn't say that. That's the Great Commission. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Uh, it's a direct command. And I decided when I first heard it as a new Christian, I took it very personally. I didn't say, well, this is for the whole church, so let somebody else do it, you know. Just because Jesus said that, it didn't mean that I'm the one who should do it. No, I took it very personally. In fact, I have a bad habit. Everything I see in the Bible, I take it very personally. I don't push it off to others and say, well, other, you know, we are the body of Christ. And, you know, some are called to have fun and the others are called to... So let, let somebody else shoulder this burden. No, I take it very personally. This may have got me into trouble a lot of times, you know, but I have no regrets. So this is one of the things I took personally, go into all the world and preach the gospel. So I said, okay, I'm ready to go. So one of the first things, uh, uh, one, one of the things that's closest to me is my passport. I have passports from two different countries. I have three different passports, and I carry them with me wherever I go. Everywhere I go, I'm ready to move at a moment's notice. Hallelujah. Amen. So, go into all the world and preach the gospel. So, it's called Jesus told us. He told us to do it, and so I do it. Now, the, my other reason would be, uh, would be um, you know, the, how do you say the end time prophecies. Matthew 24, 14, Jesus said, This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to every nation as a witness, and then shall the end come. So the end time, I know a lot of people, when they talk about the end times, they talk about Israel and, and the fig tree and all that. But, and that's all good. There's many indicators of the end time. But for me, one of the greatest indicators is that the gospel must be preached to every nation and then, shall, then Jesus shall return. In fact, if, if you go to Daniel, you go to Revelation, there's a lot there you can glean from there about the end times. But those scriptures are so cryptic and different people interpret them in different ways. But if you go to Matthew uh, 24, 25, you know, when Jesus talks about it, it is so plain. There's no way you can misinterpret it. I mean, it's very as clear as day. You don't need someone to tell you what it means. You read it, it's right there. And right there, Jesus talks about how bad things are going to get in the world. He said there'll be, rumor, there'll be war. And not only will there be war, but there'll be rumors of war. And there'll be hunger and there'll be famine. That means there'll be you know, financial problems. And then the first thing he says, but do not fear. Hallelujah. 
Do not fear. So when people say, oh, I wonder what I'll do. The economy is so bad. Americans love to talk about the economy. In fact, they complain about the economy even when the economy is good. <laughs> we, we are a nation of complainers, you know. And so, but, but, but you see, uh, but, but so he says, the first thing he says when things get bad, he says, do not complain. And do not fear. Do not fear. Do not. Can you say, I will not fear? And then, then he talks about, uh, he begins to talk about how we must help the poor and feed the poor. Can you imagine telling me to feed the poor when the economy is bad? <laughs> that, but that's what he told us to do. And, and then he says, and this gospel must be preached as a witness. So then he tells us we must preach the gospel. And the gospel is free, but to get the gospel out to people costs money. So everything he told us to do costs us money. In a time when the economy is bad and there's famine, that means people cannot afford to buy food. They're dying of hunger. And there's wars and rumors of war. I mean, we live in time. You look at Afghanistan and people are talking about what's going to happen and you know, all those things. And, and uh, you, you know, I begin to collect money for Afghan refugees. I said to, um, um, you know, Pastor Mark, Pastor Rhonda, and, and people are afraid that the Afghans will come here. I mean, people are, people are scared of everything. And so, so, okay, we must do, Christians are saying, okay, we must do something to help the Afghan refugees as long as they don't come here. You know, so, so I had one pastor call my wife and said, uh, hey, I heard you guys are helping these Afghan refugees. Yes, we are. Oh, I want to send some money. Oh, thank you very much. Oh, I hope you're not bringing them here. <laughs> and, and, you know, and the thing is that, but the thing is that all these things in this really, uh, turbulent times uh, that we couldn't even envision 10, 15, 20 years ago, Jesus told us to get our, to up our game, you know, to, to really uh, take these things to heart. So that's why I preach the gospel. Jesus told us to. Amen. He told us to do these things. Hallelujah. So anyway, so these are my biblical reasons for preaching the gospel. Hallelujah. Now comes to my personal reasons for preaching the gospel. And the first, I've got three personal reasons. The first personal reason is I preach the gospel because of what Jesus has done for me. And, you know, I told you until the age of 21, I'd never met a Christian, never heard of, Je well, I did hear about Jesus, except that he was, you know, as a Muslim, we believe Jesus was some kind of a prophet. Uh, and, and that was about it, but nothing more. I didn't know anything about him dying on the cross and and rise again on the third day, or him being the savior of man. I didn't know any of those things. I just knew he was some kind of prophet. Because Islam teaches that Jesus was the greatest of all prophets after Muhammad. Muhammad was number one, Jesus was number two, and, uh, but nothing more than that. So, you know, I grew up as a Muslim, and my story is this. When I had a, my father was an army officer, uh, I, had an, I had a happy childhood until I was eight. And then my parents uh, divorced. And uh, uh, my father married another lady, and she was very abusive. She used to beat me up. And so I remember from the age of 8 until the age of 13, uh, all I remember really from those days is the severe beatings I, I received almost every day. 
So I, I didn't know what to do. So, you know, I was small. I didn't know where to go, what to do. And then one day I saw an ad in the paper that the Air Force had a, had a program in which they were taking kids my age and they would give them an education and give them military training. And then by the time they were 17, they'd start, you know, doing flying and all that, basic flying. And then they'd go to the Air Force Academy and then they'd be full-fledged fighter pilots. So I signed up for that and I applied. There were 10,000 kids who applied and, and they were taking only about 30, but somehow I got in. And so anyway, I got in and I remember when I reported for duty, they gave me a haircut, gave me uniforms, all that, kitted me out. And, uh, and I thought, I really thought that uh, just getting away from my home and not being beaten up anymore would make me happy, but I was not happy. And I couldn't understand why I was not happy, although I was not being subject to that kind of abuse anymore. And it took me years, years later, and being in the ministry uh, and counseling people, then I suddenly realized that, you see, what happens is that um, you, you just can't run away from things because once that root of bitterness and rejection takes root in you, it becomes a part of you and it'll continue to torment you. Even you can move a thousand miles away from your tormentors or, or they, they can be dead, but that, that, that bitterness and rejection will continue to hurt you because now it's no longer a matter of who is treating you bad, but it's a question of who you have become. And, uh, and I didn't realize that. I couldn't understand why I was not happy. So by the time I was 15, I was suicidal. And, uh, but the only thing that kept me from committing suicide is because Islam teaches that suicide is a cardinal sin at a person uh, who commits suicide. In fact, uh, if a Muslim commits suicide, they don't even say funeral prayers for him. They just bury him because they believe that he's going straight to hell and there's no mitigating circumstances. And so I was very afraid because I knew, I always believed there was a God. I knew there was a heaven and a hell and I was afraid of dying and going to hell. So then what happened was that here I was stuck in a life I didn't want to live and I was suicidal but I couldn't kill myself. Anyway, a couple of years passed. So when I was 17, the country went to war. And the president came on the radio and the TV and he announced that this was jihad. Now, jihad is holy war. When they declare a jihad, that means if you die in a holy war, you are dying for, for God, for Allah. And, 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 and in that circumstance, all your sins will, will be forgiven and you'll go straight to heaven. So I can you imagine, I'm 17 years old. When kids are 17 years old, they're thinking of college, they're thinking of the future, and I'm just thinking of death. I'm planning my own death. So I spent a whole month fasting and praying, preparing myself, and then the war started, and, uh, and um, I volunteered for ground operations, and I went to war with the sole intent of dying. But the war ended... Uh, uh, started and that it was terrible. I saw, I saw horrible things that no, I mean, I was a teenager, no, uh, let alone an adult shouldn't see those things because uh, you have seen Vietnam veterans scarred for life. They're physically okay. 
when mentally they are scarred for life. You see them, you know, can't hold a job. There's, there's over uh, 60,000 homeless veterans in America. I want you to think of it. And may I say something without offending you? I have a big heart for veterans because I'm a veteran myself. And, and I want you to understand, please don't be offended. You know, if a sports, if a football player kneels instead of standing for the flag, I stand for the flag, but if he kneels, then we all get up in arms. Oh, he's dishonoring the veterans. Listen, what about those veterans you pass every day? Do you even give them a thought? So we talk about someone, a football player, kneeling at the national anthem. We think that is dishonoring a veteran, yet we don't blink an eyelid when we see them all around us not having a place to sleep. I, w I want us to think as Christians. Do you understand? I, I, you know, honestly, I mean, I honor the flag, but a lot of it is politics. And, and that's what it is. And we Christians, we kind of buy into it. If you really, really honor veterans, do something for a veteran. Do something for them. Amen? Anyway, that, that's not my message, but I, I just wanted to, I just, because I want, I, I want to challenge myself to think, and I want you to think. So anyway, I was 17, and, and I came out of the war, and uh, you know, you see those horrible things, and they, they scar you for life, and then, but what I couldn't understand why I, who had nothing to live for, who wanted to die, I lived, while others who had everything to live for, they died or they came out scarred for life. I couldn't understand. And at that point, I was, I really, I really, I, I was like an agnostic. I didn't really uh, know if there was a God anymore. And if he was there, he certainly didn't care for me or what was happening down here. And anyway, so somehow, you know, at that time, then I, I got commissioned in the army. I became an army officer and uh, I, I left. I mean, I was kind of drifting, not really knowing what to do. I left the army, then I went back again. And then I was, I was 21, still suicidal, still messed up. And then one day I met an Englishman. He was on the streets. He was handing out tracts. And I, I remember he was on the other side of the street. I saw this white man. He was like six foot six and skinny, thin as a rail. And, and, and I remember looking at his face. He had this look of uh, tranquility and peace and joy. And I remember thinking, he, this man has something that I have never known. And you know, this was in the 70s. There were, you had these hippies and people doing drugs. And I thought, I've got to find out what this guy has been smoking, you know. <laughs> so so, I, so I, I crossed the street and, and walked up to him and he began to tell me about Jesus. And I remember hearing about Jesus for the first time in my life. It was like in those few minutes, my whole world was turned upside down and I was thinking, this is what I'm waiting, I've been waiting for my whole life. And then he says, do you want to give your life to Jesus? I said, yes. So right there I got saved. I prayed the prayer and I received Jesus and it was like a huge burden that I'd been carrying was lifted off. And I was, I was, I was so happy. I was, for the first time in my life, I was laughing for like for no reason, you know, like in a Holy Ghost meeting. Ha, 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 what's wrong? I don't know. I was just happy, you know. I'm, I'm laughing and I'm, I'm rejoicing and I'm singing. And so they thought something was wrong with me. So I was put in the army mental hospital. Uh, 
because they thought something is wrong with this guy. His behavior is funny. So anyway, I came after, out after two and a half weeks because they found nothing was wrong with me. Plus, I was witnessing to uh, people and then one of the staff got saved, you know. Uh, one of the nurses got saved. So uh, he was a sergeant and he was in charge of the place. He took me out. He said, sir, there's nothing wrong with you. I told him about Jesus. He began to cry. He also wanted to receive Jesus. Anyway, then the psychiatrist the next day. So any, after that, I was under house arrest and I escaped from there and I was on the streets preaching. Uh, for several months, I was on the streets and then I was arrested. I was in prison for almost a whole year. And they told me that you'll come out only if you uh, renounce uh, your faith in Christ and come back to Islam again. Anyway, I refused. And, but I was released in a little bit less than a year later. And then they said to me that uh, if you don't go back to Islam, we're going to kill you. And so I escaped and um, I made my way to Europe. And I came to Sweden where I got political asylum. I got baptized with the Holy Spirit, I got married, and from there I went to Ramah, and so here I am today. And, and you know, I look back at my journey and I say, uh, I know two things are, I'm very sure about. The first thing is, the Bible says, if any man is in Christ Jesus, he's a new creature. All things are passed away, all things have become new, and I know that to be true. Because I know what God has done in my life. You know, that I know. So I know that Jesus is a life changer. And the second thing I want you to know that God is always faithful to his word. He is always faithful to his word. These are two things uh, uh, that are unshakable in my life. That, uh, you know, I'm a new creature in Christ. And secondly, God, that God is always true and faithful to his word. Amen. Amen. So that's the first reason, first personal reason why I preach the gospel, because I know what Jesus has done for me. And I want him to do for others what he has done for me. And that's why I'm preaching the gospel. Now, the second personal reason I have for preaching the gospel is because um, of what I have seen Jesus do for others, for other people. Uh, I, can tell you by, I can tell you many stories, but there's one story that comes to mind. A few years ago, I was doing a crusade in a, in a town in Zambia called Chaisa. And about, uh, now I have a PA system. Uh, when I'm preaching, you can hear me a few miles away. And the reason I have that big PA system is because I want everybody to hear, everybody in town to hear the gospel whether they want to or not. Because many people say, I'm not going to the crusade. Fine, I'll come to your house, you know. <laughs> So, so anyway, so uh, about uh, a mile away, about one and a half kilometers a mile away, uh, there, there was a family uh, with two children. There was a little girl, she was about 11, and, uh, there was her, and her baby brother, he was nine. Now the nine-year-old, the 11-year-old was okay, but the boy, the nine-year-old, he had contracted spinal meningitis that had left him paralyzed from his, his chest down. And so he was confined to bed. He couldn't move. He just lay in bed. Now the parents were, they hated Christianity. They were angry at God. And, you know, and anyway, so they, that's what they were like. And every evening they would go to the local bar, the pub, to drink beer with their friends and hang out. And they'd come back at home. And so 
I started my crusade on Tuesday night. I'm preaching Tuesday night. I'm preaching Wednesday night. Thursday night, uh, after the parents go to the bar and they say to the girl, look after your baby brother, mom and dad will be back soon. And they go to the bar. So the little boy says to his sister, he says, could you please carry me on your back to where this man is preaching? Because he was listening to me through the open window and said, because I know his Jesus is going to heal me. And so the little girl said, she said, you know, it's very far. It's close to where I go to school and it's very far away and you are heavy and you're almost as big as me and I couldn't carry you. And uh, he began to cry. He says, please, this is my only chance. I asked mom and dad and dad got very angry. And because I don't want to be like this the rest of my life, because I know, I know his Jesus is going to heal me because he's healing all those other people. And so the sister said, you know, I couldn't really carry you, but she begged her, pleaded with her. Then she begins to cry. Then she says, okay, okay, I, I will do what I can. So she picks her brother up on her back because African women, they carry their children on their back. So she, she picks him up on her back and she starts walking. Now, in Africa, I say there's nothing as dark as an African night because in those poor townships, they don't have street lights. It's completely pitch dark. The moment you are outdoors, you don't see a thing. Uh, it's pitch dark. And secondly, the roads are not paved. There's potholes and, and there's sharp stones, you know, and, and you, you, can, you don't know where you're stepping into. And so she's walking with her brother and she steps into a pothole and falls and, and she cuts herself. And then she says, I don't know if I could do this. And he's pleading. He's crying also. And she picks him up again. And and, uh, and, and, you know, so, I mean, but finally they made it to the crusade. Now, when they came there, you should have seen them. I mean, their, their knees, their elbows were skinned and bleeding. And they were cut all over, even on their faces, foreheads. There was blood. And they were covered with dirt. They had fallen that many times, but they had made it there. Uh, they made it to the crusade. And that night, Jesus healed that little boy. And uh, Jesus healed that little boy. And... Uh, and, you know, they, they came, they, somebody picked them up and put them on the platform and I heard the story. And then they walked back home and they were playing in the kitchen. And when mom and dad came, without anyone telling them, they understood what had happened. And they both went on their knees, they began to cry. And the next day, mom and dad came, came to the crusade, all their neighbors, their friends, his workmates, about a couple of hundred people, they all came and they all got saved. And, and, and you know, and I, and I thought of that little boy uh, so many times that uh, here in America, we value people by how much money they make. You know, we talk about how much a person is worth, you know, how much is his net worth. And uh, in Africa, you can't say that about anybody, especially in those poor townships. They are so poor, they have nothing. But how much are they worth? They are worth so much to God that Jesus came to this world and shed his blood to save them. And so I goes with my team and I said to my team, I said, guys, we are used to seeing these crowds on the platform. And all we see, like in this crusade, we have 80, 80 90,000 people every night. We see a sea of faces. And, 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 you know, night after night, year after year, we see these faces. But I said, but sometimes... God lifts up an individual and we can look into that person's face, into his eyes, and we realize 
that this is what the gospel is all about. It is about people who Jesus died to save. And I think of that kid quite often and, and wonder how old he is now and what he is doing today and that he has a life today. And so I think of him and I think of all those other people. I think of uh, uh, you know, a little girl in Zimbabwe uh, who was born, anyway, I don't want to go in, but there's so many stories, stories of people who Jesus has touched. So it's not just about my life. I think about places where God has sent me to preach the gospel and how God has changed people's lives and blind people have received sight, lame people have gotten up and walked and and what, had, what God has done for them. So I preach the gospel because of what I have seen Jesus do for other people. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. The third personal reason why I preach the gospel is because of a man called Jim Turner. And let me tell you something about who Jim Turner was. When, when I got saved and I... Uh, I was in prison. I came out of prison. I began to go to a church. And uh, I remember it was a Wednesday night. I was always there. You know, I never, I tried not to miss a service. And the pastor, he was an Australian missionary. He called me out. He says, brother, uh, on Sunday, I want you to sit in the back. Because I always like to sit in the front. I said, sure, pastor, I will sit wherever you want me to sit. But why? He says, because Sunday is communion Sunday. And I cannot give you communion because you're not water baptized. I said, Pastor, I've been to prison for my faith. He said, I know that, but, you know, I said, I can't find anyone to baptize me. I don't know why. I said, will you baptize me? He says, no, uh, I'm sorry, I can't baptize you. I said, but Pastor, why don't you want to baptize me? Then he began to explain to me. He said, you see the way when, when a Muslim gets saved, believes in Jesus, I mean, they persecute him. But... Water baptism for a Muslim, that's the final breaking point. When a person has, has become water baptized, then he has crossed that final line of no return. And so if you, he said, this has happened in the past, and this is going to happen to you. He says, whoever baptizes you, he says, the fundamental is they will kill you. They will kill that pastor. Then they could even destroy his church and burn down his church and kill families in the church. We have seen this before. Muslim gets saved and uh, there's like unnecessary bloodshed, loss of life. Uh, pastors have been killed. People have been killed. And so we decided we are a minority in this country. We want to live at peace with our neighbors. And so we will not baptize any Muslim believers. So I couldn't take communion because I was not baptized and nobody wanted to baptize me. So I met uh, an American missionary called Jim Turner. And um, I didn't really know him. I just, I was introduced to him. I kind of knew him from a distance. And we had said hello once or twice. So Jim Turner heard of this and he came to me. He said, brother, I heard you want to get baptized. I said, yes. He said, is that because you can take communion? I said, yes, sir. He said, I will baptize you. I said, sir, if something happens to you, since you're an American, there'd be an international kind of incident. He said, it doesn't matter. He said, I've been watching you. I know God's hand is over your life. And I don't want anything to hinder you from receiving what God has for you. So if taking communion is so important to you, I will baptize you. 
So he took me to the Arabian Sea, where in the presence of many people he baptized me. And so I was water baptized in the ocean, and then I had to escape. And when I was in Sweden, a few months later, I got a letter from another American missionary, and he wrote to me that Pastor Turner has been killed. And they found his body up in the mountains. So I checked and what had happened. Then I found out that he had been killed by the fundamentalists because he had baptized me. And that... Uh, um, that was difficult because I couldn't understand why an American missionary uh, with a wife and three beautiful children, young children, would choose to sacrifice his life for someone like me so that this Arab kid could take communion. And so since that day, I lived my life trying to repay a debt that I know I can never repay in full. Because I know it has cost me something to follow Jesus, but Jim Turner and his family, it cost them everything. So. Even today, like 44, 45 years later, every time I take communion, I think of what it cost that man so that I can hold the cup and take that piece of bread. Every altar call I do, it's like I'm trying to pay off a debt that I know I can never repay. It costs something to follow Jesus, but for some people, it has cost everything. So Jim Turner is my third reason why I preach the gospel. We hope you're inspired by today's message. If you want to hear more from the Word of God, head over to cwol.org. Check us out on YouTube or any social platform under at Seawall Madison. We believe God is working within you, and we want you to know Him so you too can make Him known.